going forth today with a message coming from the book of Isaiah, the 48th chapter, 10th through the 11th verse. Uh, the Lord's furnace of affliction. The scripture reads, it says, Behold, I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction for mine own sake, even for my own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory to another? See here that the Lord is telling his people, Lord God, that they had been given over to idolatry and to the things of this world, and that he had sent them to Babylon, and, and in Babylon that they were going to be tested, and that was his furnace of affliction for his people, and only a third of the people would return from this furnace of affliction. We know that Assyria had already carried the northern tribes away captive, and that only the Judah, the tribe of Judah, were left. The tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the southern tribes. And due to their idolatry and the sins of Manasseh, they were being carried away in captivity in Babylon. But the last vestiges of the Lord's name that he wasn't going to allow this to happen in vain or whatever, and that he wouldn't give his glory to another, and that some would glorify him and lift him up. We look back where the prophet said in the beginning of the first chapter of Isaiah, the first chapter, the 24th through the 22nd verse, it says, Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of my enemies, and I will turn my hand upon thee and pur purely purge away the dr thine dross and take away all thine tin, and I will restore thine judges as at the first and thine counselors as at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness. So we here see a, a purge within the people of Judah, which will kind of identify as a purge in the latter-day church in which he'll decide between sheep and sheep. He'll make a judgment between sheep and sheep. And in judging in these latter days, He's going to call forth a church in righteousness of people that establish the kingdom and go forth as a royal priesthood and will judge the world. And we've had judged the world by the word of God. And I said Babylon was a furnace of afflictions and that we have to see all things as coming from God. And afflictions does come from God. The afflictions that we have in our lives, we, we would fare much better when we see that these affliction does come from the Lord. The book of Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter and the 5th verse says, Therefore know you in your heart, that is, be fully cognizant or aware of the fact that the Lord your God disciplines and instructs you just as a man disciplines and instructs his son. As God's chastening his people, and his people have to be aware, as God is their father, that he has a purpose in, in our lives. He's, he's bringing us somewhere. He's headed somewhere with us. And with that bringing us somewhere, that must be 
chastening and discipline along the way to correct us in the way that we should go and that he has typed and shattered this with the parents in the home raising the children and there's chastisements and there's punishments there's rewards and all of these things so his family is typed and shattered as the people of God and as the church of God sometimes when things happen to us or whatever and we fault God or we looking at it through our own perspective and not through God's perspective as that we have left off from obeying the Lord, from following God. In the book of Ruth, the first chapter in the 20th verse where it says, Ruth, uh, Naomi, she says, but she told them, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Myra. That means Naomi meant the word pleasant, but the word Myra means bitter. She says, for Almighty God has dealt bitterly with me that he he has dealt in such a way. But if we would look at it, it, it's that their faith or their trust in God had waned at the time. And a husband, Ahimelech, had left, left Judah, had left his land and went to Moab, which was called the breadbasket because of the famine that was in the land. But God destroyed or allowed his life to be taken from him along with his two sons. And Naomi is judging God in this and saying that call her Mara now, in other words, bitterly because the Lord hadn't done too well with her, uh, that God had caused her great grief and bitterness. But we see where Moab was her furnace of afflictions, whereas that if she was faithful to God and turned away from her ways or whatever, and that which she do, that she would be rewarded and come through that furnace of affliction, that God hadn't abandoned her, but God was carrying out his purpose, even that purpose would be worked out in bringing along the Messiah through Ruth, through Ruth, which was a Moabite. So we see when God brings us through the furnace of affliction that he's working out all his plan all the while and that we have to line up with God's plan, line up with his will before we can see the uh, get the proper perspective in life and see what God is doing in life and how he's doing with us. And that, that happened with Job also. Job's wife couldn't see what God was doing in their lives or whatever, and, they, and more or less they were like modern-day people. They look at God to continually blessed and that God should prosper us and deal favorably with us, but instead of we taking the bad and the good, we, we kind of blame God when things don't go quite the way we want them to go. Uh, Job, the first chapter of Job, the 20th verse Job says, I was living at ease, but he crushed me and broke me apart. And he has seized me by the neck and has shaken me to pieces. He has also set me up as his target. Job viewed himself as that God interrupted his life here and took him from a place of comfort, a place in which there was stability and prosperity in his life and within his family and that he was only a bullseye that was set out as a target for God here. And 
God has to take him through a, a number of events to, before God can allow, let him see things from his perspective. But it was a furnace. It was a furnace of affliction where a lot of the dross of the things that were burned away in Job's life in that it's God's purpose. Everything is done to glorify God and to bring about him in our lives as, as a stable figure, as one that has designs for a family and a holy people and a family that glorifies God in all that they see, say, and do. The book of Psalms, the 66th chapter, Psalm 11 verse says, You brought us into the net. You laid a heavy burden of servitude on us. God indeed, sometime it seems as though as the net that was cast by Peter that drove drug all kinds of uh, fish in, that God sometimes, uh, unless we pray to God and talk to God, he seems like a cruel taskmaster and that he's working capriciously in our lives and that be not the case that we don't know God and that we have to seek God when troubled times and things in our lives that it don't seem to be lining up the way that we want it to or whatever. But we have to get to know this God. We have to get to know God as a father and that he's not doing anything haphazard or capriciously in our lives and that there's a reason for him doing everything that he's doing unto us. Uh, and the book of Psalms, the 90th, 90th Psalm, the 7th verse, it says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been troubled. That is, the Amplified says, terrified. Uh, it says, we've been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we've been troubled. In other words, we can only see the circumstances. We can only see the outlying factors of what's going on, and we can't see God in this. And that's what I, I remember a sermon by John Reitenbar. I think it was uh, Brother Collins. Uh, it was named, Can You See God or Do We See God? And, and can we see God in all our situations and circumstances? I remember listening to Charles Stanley and him teaching that we have to view everything that is that happens in our lives as coming from God. In other words, if it's not a direct process of God, God divine providence in our lives, it's a it's a it's God allowing these circumstances to happen. For our betterment, he's working in our lives for a reason or whatever. But all types of calamity, anything that happens in our life, God has to ordain these things, allow them in our lives. But God is not working to destroy us, that he's working to build character, that he's working to make us in his image and in his likeness. And Psalms 102 and 9, uh, the psalmist reads, and this is David here again. This is another psalmist as, as, as written. He says, For I have eaten ashes like bread, and I have mingled my drink with tears. You know, sometimes as we go along and things are going on, and we 
start down the road of, of depression, uh, uh, down of a time of not seeing the Lord and not having the resources of meditating in His Word, and that God is with us, and no matter what the circumstances and things are, that I think that's the time that God's trying to get us to talk with Him, pray to Him, and to look to His Word, and the Ask him for clarity and understanding to guide and hold our hands and know that he hadn't forsaken us or left us alone in this furnace of affliction and that he goes in the fire with us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they went into that fiery furnace and King Nebuchadnezzar looked in and he seen in the furnace a fourth figure and it was the one that looks like the Son of God, the king says. And no matter what we're going through, we have to see that God is right there with us and trying to lead us by His Spirit and guide us if we would just take our time and be patient and look steadily at the burning bush that we could hear the voice of God speaking unto us. Now, there's a lot of calamity and things that's going to arise in our lives. As the prophet Habakkuk had realized in, in preaching and teaching to the people that God had given him an oracle in which he was saying as bad as things were, that they were going to get worse. And as a church, we're going to have to realize things will get much worse than it is now and Habakkuk was trying to derive reasoning and, and, and something away from what God was telling him to come away from an ideal of, 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 of something that looms throughout the New Testament now, whatever would brought about his famous words and things because the first chapter of Habakkuk, the 14th through the 17th verse says, Are we but fish to be caught and killed? Are we but creeping things that have no leader to defend them from their foes? Must we be strung up by their hooks and dragged out in their nets? While they rejoice, then they will worship their nets and burn incense before them. These are the gods who make us rich, they'll say. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will they succeed forever in, the heart, in their heartless wars? We see in verse 14 and 15 the extended metaphor in which the Chaldeans are seen as fishermen and the people of Judah the nation and the nations around them as, as fish. And Habakkuk visualizes the people, especially his own, his own people, as fish in a barrel. They cannot escape. They cannot escape. Uh, the easy pickings from the cruel Chaldeans, and whether they, by, whether by hook or by net, these evil Gentiles will have their way with the Judeans, because God is letting them do that. And we see that now. We see it in the book of Daniel that He turns the holy people over to the power of the wicked ones, and they'll trounce, they'll persecute the holy people and. We see all kinds of unrighteousness going on in the nation, and it seems like the bad people are winning, and all of the idol makers of idolatry and what's going on in the world has us down, and 
betrothed at this time or whatever, not realizing that God is trying to get our attention through affliction, the, the furnace of affliction that he had cast us in. And the enemy may be happy and wealthy and powerful now because God is not punishing their wickedness. It seems as though God's rewarding their wickedness. And we see our people being killed or dying off or losing members in the church is falling into destruction and into loss. And it's look like the, the, the evil and wickedness is invading the church and we're getting beat to a pulp. In effect, Habakkuk is accusing God of letting the people get away with murder. And verse 16, Habakkuk speaks to the Chaldeans as sacrificing until their nets. It seems as though it draws people to be more wicked because God is rewarding their wickedness or their evil deeds or their idolatry or to their wicked practices and they have no reason to turn away from these practices as in the book of Daniel where it says Gabriel prophesizes that the king of the north will honor a god of fortresses. It's like they honoring their military might. We see what Russia is doing to Ukraine now. We see that we look at power's might and finally the prophet Acts, are you going to continue and allow them to get away with this? Which this in his frustration, as it seems to subside a little bit, he con- concludes in, in that second chapter of Habakkuk with a remark that is very smart and very wise. And as this happens, he says, but the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. We have to continue to go on living in such a way that we know God is not dead, that God is not asleep, and he's not slumbering, and that there is a a purpose for what he's allowing and what goes on into our lives. Uh, The refining of spiritual influence of being placed in the furnace of God's affliction, the spiritual influence, Influence that's a refining effect, and we see that God has to refine the church. And we'll look at a few verses here talking about this effect that it has on God's people. And it says, Job 23 and 10, it says, But he knows the way that I take, and he pays attention to it. Whether he has tried me, when he has tried me, I will come forth as refined gold pure and luminous. In other words, after going through God's testing and everything, this, that it would give effect of, of purging the evilness, the wickedness, the doubt, and the unbelief out of me. That's how, as the man prayed, Lord, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. God has to have us to go through experience on the ground to prove us and test us that he will bring us through the fire, that he saves us through the fire. But we have to be cast into that fire and to learn to trust and have faith in him through all of these things that's going on in our lives. Psalm 66 and 10 says, and it says, you have tested me, O God. 
You have refined us as silver is refined. Now, as we go back to that verse, he says he, he's going to refine us, but not as silver is refined. In other words, he's not going to let the fire get too hot. He knows what we all can bear, or what we can test. So in his life, he's paying particular attention to developing character into these sons that he received. He, that he marks, that he scourges every son that he receives, that God's working personally to mold this clay. He's shaping it and he's taking his time to build up this endurance and faith to where we'll glisten like pure gold when we come through this fire. As Job on the other side was doubly rewarded for what he had been through and God rewards him twice, but after all of that, he says he thought he knew, but now he see God and he understand God's better. Uh, in that living version of that 66th chapter in the 10th Psalm says, you have purified us with fire, O Lord, like silver in a crucible. Well, when that's in that crucible, God has to burn away bitterness, that, that bitterness that Mara was experiencing that she said no longer call her Naomi after the birth of this young, her, her grandchild that Ruth had gave her through Boaz. She don't remember the hard times as such. She can see God as a rewarding God in that God is with her and that as he had brought us through those bad times that we was Sometimes we go astray before we're afflicted. They had went astray before they were afflicted. They had left from where God had them at, and they went through affliction, but God still brought them out of it. Jeremiah, the ninth chapter in the seventh verse says, Therefore the Lord our God, the Lord of hosts, behold, I will refine them through suffering and test them. For how else should I deal with the daughter of my people? The living version reads that, Therefore the Lord Almighty says this, See, I will melt them in a crucible of affliction. I will refine them and test them like metal. What else can I do with them? See, because this is very precious. This is very valuable that what he's trying to do because it's permanent. It's everlasting and it's enduring this character that he's molding in us. And sometimes, you know, we say things, but when put to the test, just got like God tested Abraham. But do you realize, do you see that it was some 30 years in dealing with Abraham before God throw, threw him into the very hot fire of asking him to kill his only son, that he had many opportunities is that when he was afraid for his life and lied and say that Sarah was his sister and all of these things. But do you see that the trial, the tribulation of the fire was heating up to the point where he's allowing other people in on it, murmuring and complaining but at the end, when God throws him in this furnace of affliction and tell him the sacrifice Isaac, his son, 
doesn't even seem like he told Sarah about this. He didn't let Isaac in on it. He says God had provided provide himself a sacrifice. So he was through with complaining and mumbling and grumbling. He totally trusted God through this ordeal, through this suffering. Now, we don't know how well Abraham slept that night or whatever, but his confidence was in God in the midst of this crucible because he woke up early and went on to the task in which God had commissioned him to carry out. In the book of Zechariah, the 13th chapter and the ninth verse, we see, as I was telling you about the people being carried into Babylon, and only a small remnant returned out of Babylon. A great majority of the people stayed in Babylon when Cyrus had freed them to return and worship and build God a house. In the book of Zechariah, the 13th chapter, the ninth verse, it says, And I will bring a third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined. And I will try them as gold is tried. Now that's a refining and a trying. And they shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they will say that the Lord is my God. Now this is a separated people. This is a call out people. In other words, They've learned to obey God, to wait till they hear his voice, to call upon him. That many of me, that the Lord had, had used or whatever, it says of many are called, but a few chosen. So this is the third part. This is a refining of the people down to a point where this is the cream of the crop, that God has a selection here of those that he will hear and that will say the Lord is my God. We see in the beginning of that chapter where it says that they those that are called by his name, those that call upon the name of the Lord, and they're not calling in vain and they've departed from iniquity because God had purified them to a state or point where he can use them because he's getting them ready for the priesthood. That's what he's doing to the church. He's getting us ready for to be a royal priesthood unto him. The book of Malachi, the third chapter, and the third verse says, And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That they're not, see, because being a priest, we must follow the law. We must follow the spirit of God. We must follow things and be obedient to God and be circumspect. And so we can't afford to make these mistakes. This is a pre- this is a people that ha- has come through the fire. This is a prepared people that God has been working with over a period of time who had studied God's word and understand the, the, that we should be very obedient to God's word and that we should submit ourselves fully, fully unto God. Now, inflicted by God, uh, afflicted by God for the priesthood. I told you that we are royal priesthood. We are ones that are going to teach people or be able to speak to God for these people. A priest is one that speaks to God for others. 
And that's what the first fruits is about. That's what the church is about. Isaiah, the 53rd chapter and the fourth verse says, Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Uh, and the Amplified says, But in fact, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows and pains. Yet we ignorantly assumed that he was stricken, struck down by God, and degraded and humiliated by him. Yet it was grief he bore, our sorrows, and it weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But we see now, or we understand now, that it wasn't for his sin. These were self-afflicted, inflicted wounds that he took this upon himself of ours. These was our sins that he bore. It wasn't his sin. He was sinless, and we must be sinless. Those that serve God or worship, that serve God and do the work of God must have clean hands. We have to purge ourselves. In other words, through the Spirit of God, when he imputes us with righteousness, we must keep ourselves unspotted from this present world so we can't be contaminated with this world that to, to be, be able to be used from God. We can't inherit the world. We have to purge ourselves. And in the English grammar, it, uh, we're looking at this verb of, of the action. It reflexes and means the action of the verb is directed back at the subject. One of the things in Isaiah 53, 4 saying is that Christ voluntarily submitted himself to this affliction, that he came in the volume of the book. It was written of him. And he tells us that present our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God. That is what he had uh, presented a body under God. God's looking for a body. He had presented this body. It says, like a refiner, he will sit closely and watch as the dross is burned away. That's why we have to come to him and talk to him about our sins with prayer and supplication. Let our requests be known to God. And patiently, as he works in our lives and lead us and guide us, he said, it says he will purify the Levites. In other words, the ministers of God, the priest of God, refining them like silver. First Peter 1 and 7 says, so that the genuineness of our faith, which is much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested and purified by fire, may be found to the result in your praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, when Christ starts to reveal and work in our lives in this tested life, this working life, it says in the living, let, let's look at the living and how, how it presents the same verse of First Peter says, these trials are only to test your faith to see whether or not it is strong and pure. You remember when Jude says, contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. You see, you have different faiths. And we have the word of faith moment. We have all different people 
talking about faith and having faith and faith and different faiths or whatever, but this has to be a pure, a strong, and a genuine faith in Christ Jesus, in his works, in his completed works, in what he has done. It's completely in him, none of ourselves, and not in works or anything else. It is being tested as fire tests gold and purifies it. And your faith is much more precious to God than mere gold. So if your faith remains strong after being tried in the test tube of fiery trials, it will bring much praise, glory, and honor on the day of his return. Uh, Now, a lot of us try to escape from our trials. We try to uh, rebuke the devil. We rebuke instead of going through this suffering and affliction. You remember I say he was afflicted and he suffered and he bore our, by his stripes, we were healed or whatever. Sometimes we have to go through these things. This is a song of imprecations here about this individual, David, going through the waters, going through the sufferings and what the enemy was doing unto him. And we see a lot of words of imprecations further on in this psalm but as it begins out the psalm verse 1 and 2 begins out says save me O God for the waters have threatened my life they have come up to my neck I have sunk in deep mire where there is no foothold I have come into deep waters where a flood overwhelms me I am weary with my crying my throat is parched my eyes fail while I wait with confident expectation for my God. The psalm, uh, the psalmist provides a vivid picture of a person dealing with many pressing issues at once, and he feels as if he were overwhelmed or he was drowning. Undoubtedly, he bore his sacrifices, rejections, and reproaches without complaint to those who he was serving. So, you know, with all of the people you're helping or what are you doing or whatever, you're not murmuring and complaining, but you're internalizing these things and thou you you you're internal uh, you you you're supplicating unto God and you're telling God about how you feel overwhelmed in all of the situations and things you're going through. Uh first Peter two twenty-three this he says, while being reviled and insulted, he did not revile or insult in return. While suffering, he made no threats of vengeance, uh, taking vengeance, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges fairly. So as the world heaps all of these things upon you, you're not saying, well, I'll pay them back. You're not, as Jesus it says, when reviled, he reviled not again. He was saying, Lord, forgive them. He wasn't saying, you wait till I come down off this cross and what I'm going to do to you or whatever. He took this and he internalized it and cried out to God, to the Father who was able to save him and able to keep him through all of these things. We see the children of Israel. The reason he destroyed so many of them in the wilderness where they were murmuring and complaining about 
what God was allowing and doing in their lives and what was going on. And at one point, he sent fiery serpents among them to destroy them, to get them back focused upon him and told Moses to make a brazen serpent and put it up on that pole. And instead of looking to others, whoever looked up at this serpent, whoever focused upon this brazen serpent, that they would live, that they would come through this ordeal. We have to be focused upon Jesus Christ, not of what we're going through, not how much people are putting on us, not what the Chaldeans are doing to us, what the Babylonians, the prideful people, not of the oppressor. He had turned his people over. We looked at in the 47th chapter where they were oppressing the old. They were oppressing the fatherless. They were oppressing his people that he had sent them and told them to go into captivity in Babylon. He had placed them in the furnace of affliction. Jesus Christ left us in the world, and he says, keep them from the evil that's in the world. So he had left us in the world, but there's a lot of people impinging upon us, uh, and he has to intercede. We pray to him to intercede and to keep us, but without murmuring and complaining. We look back at the book of Job, all that Job was going through, and it's how do you face the adversity and the trials and the afflictions that God has you. You have to realize that God has you there, that that this is from the Lord. No matter what's that God's hand is here, that's the one that delivers you. So you have to watch the process in which you're going through. How are you going through this? So as we see this, uh, it doesn't mean that he didn't take these things to God and that it did not affect his feelings and did not take them to God for comfort and consolation. And that's what we have to learn to do is he's our comfort and consolation without murmuring or complaining, but that this furnace is in, that he's trying to develop a character within ourselves, within each and every one of us as the temple of God that was in his son that did all of these things looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of his faith. And he tells us, First Peter hearing again tells us, as Peter learned, and just notice the counsel that Peter gives as an older Christian here that's experienced a lot of these things, and we see a lot of times earlier in his, in his time that Peter was one that would say things and things would affect him personally or whatever, but with this instructions in the fourth chapter of First Peter, it seems as though he's much temperate and grave and offering some good information here when he tells us about the things we're going through. He says, Dear friends, don't be bewildered or surprised. You know, dear brothers or friends, don't be bewildered or surprised when you go through the fiery trials that you have to go through ahead. For this is no strange, unusual thing that is happening to you, that it's happening to us all. All of us are going through things, so don't think it's strange or unusual that these wounds are coming. When these wounds come or these inflicted wounds come, we have to reflect and look unto Jesus or whatever to be strengthened to go through them uh, and not want to just 
uh, get rid of them or die out of them, as Job's wife told Job uh, that uh, he should curse God and die or whatever, that he had nothing to live for at that time. And that was just what Satan was looking for, for Job to curse God and die. Job, the second chapter in the tenth verse, it says, the living says, but he replied, you talk like some heathen woman. What shall we receive? Only pleasant things from the hand of God and never anything unpleasant. So in all this, Job said nothing wrong. The Amplified reads that verse to say, but he said to her, you speak as one of the spiritually foolish women. That's why in the living it says a heathen. You don't see the spiritual aspect of this. You, you you speak like you foolish of spirituality of the, what we should be experiencing in God. He says, ignorant and oblivious of God's will, shall we indeed accept only good things from God and not also accept adversity and disaster? In spite of all this, Job did not sin with his words or from his lips. Should a Christian allow himself to be mourned the good God's goodness even doing a trial. You know, and that's what I'm saying. We don't, prosperity is good and good health and everything. But in the suffering and in the afflictions, shouldn't we just deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow after him that's life not going to be all pleasure? We're not going to receive all favor from God in situations where it's bright and sunny. There will be those dark days in our walk with God. There will be times of adversity and each day it's not going to be something that we can just go along with or whatever and has and see that we have hilltop experiences or mountaintop experiences. There will be valley experiences and things in our lives to bemoan. When Job's wife wanted him to curse God for bringing trials upon him, Job expressed the right principle of God's universal goodness and fairness when he rebuked her for her grumbling. And are, are we looking at that in the world and those around us? Are we trying to lead others and teach and tell others about their grumbling and complaining or whatever as children of God, as priests or priesthood, as carrying forth God's word as our feet shod with the preparations of the gospel of peace? Are we telling people what God's word is saying about the, the, the things that are coming out of our mouths and what are we doing wrong? Are we being instructive at those times? Sometimes we may feel like God is not treating us fairly. Job points out, Job points out that as God's creation and recipient of his generosity and benevolence and we have no right to complain even when he allows us to be tested through hardship. You know, when Job was seemed to be afflicted and all of these things, and his friend came to him, his friends was seem as though they were seeing that maybe his children was getting what they had coming to him, that they weren't obedient children, and maybe Job had sinned, and Job had did something that he shouldn't have done or whatever. And in Job's words there in the 6th chapter of Job, the 14th verse, he kind of 
tells his friends as one of the duties of us as Christians, uh, he says, the 14th verse, it says, To him that is afflicted, pity should be shown from his friends, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty, lest he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. See, because we have to be a merciful people then. I think they were being better friends to Job when they just sat silently instead of sitting accusedly uh, making accusations against Job or against Job's families or the things in Job's life or whatever. And that's where we're to exalt and lift one another up to those who are afflicted we would be more God-like and it would illustrate us coming from a point of position of godly godliness than from a position of the accuser of the brethren and to drive that brother in further anxiety and misery as the brother who had sinned in the book of Corinthians and that Paul had told him that, that the fellowship, not the fellowship with him and that they should how to treat him who was sinning against the church and was sinning against God and sleeping with his father's wife. And after this person had repented and turned from that, Paul admonished them to receive him back as a brother and not overly punish him or drive him away. And that, that's a human characteristic of us is that we don't show pity or mercy, and that's one great characteristic of God is being merciful. To be a merciful person, mercy is, is to show a characteristic that God's working in your life, that God is shaping and forming in you. In the book of Matthew, we got a, a parable. We have in the book of Matthew where there was this group that had showed mercy unto their brethren and to their fellow people and it wasn't from a religious aspect it was an aspect in which these people were doing what the book of Micah says that we should walk humbly before our Lord our God that we should be merciful to, to, to live justly and to do good and to be humble before the Lord Matthew the 25th chapter the 34th through the 45th verse says then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, as ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was a hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous, listen at this, the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed thee, a thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, a naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of these, the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left, Depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. I was a hungered, and you gave me no meat. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee in hunger and a thirst, a stranger, a naked, a sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did not it to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting or eternal life. We see herein that these people that were righteous, and that's what I was telling you about Christ's imputed righteousness of that that we do that's a part of what God has to afflict it. He said he has the poor you'll have with you always. These people in these different conditions are there for us to show God in us, to show the godliness, that portion of God that has taken over our character, the righteousness of the saints of God. Notice that he called them righteous, and these are the righteous acts of the saints. They wasn't just doing it to be seen. They wasn't doing it just to another Christian or someone that they felt was that had a respect of person or whatever. They did it to the least of those in the place that were afflicted, those that were homeless, those that were sick, those that God had allowed afflictions to crowd their lives out and leave them in a, a precarious position or whatever. These people were attentive to their needs and were very merciful unto them and showed them compassion as it felt as though it was their duty. And that's what I tell you about a lot of people within the Catholic Church that treats it as a duty to help the poor, the outcasts, and to help with others. And there's a lot of things that God deals with in our lives that help shapes us and molds us in, in affliction and suffering. This comes about in a magnanimous way in which we set out to share with those that don't have that makes us less self-centered, less eager for that which just we have to have a system of health care or universal health care helping others. That's where hospitals and all of these things derived from was the Catholic Church. A lot of the health care system, a lot of the finances and things that are going on it comes through the church, a body of people that do it to the least of the brethren, do it to, to humanity, that looks at humanity through the eyes of the perspective of what Jesus Christ would do. In the book of Philippians, the second chapter of Philippians, the first and the second verse says, Paul and Timothy, the servant of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Grace be unto you and peace from our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. After he, he begins with his salutation to the church at, the, at Philippi, he goes on to the second chapter there, and he says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, 
If any bowels of mercy and compassion, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one mind, being of one accord. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Now this was to the church at Philippi and the Philippians we know and the Thessalonians had did a great deal of great service for, to Paul and Paul looked at them as they're doing it. It seems as though they'd embraced this Christian life as a duty to others and with a lowliness of mind. This is not the Corinthian church or the book of Romans or something. This was a church that he says that they were a fellowship of people that had bowels of mercy and compassion and that they be like-minded. And what the Philippians reached out and did was of a godly nature because they were suffering themselves through many afflictions and troubles. And when you're being afflicted or troubled to reach out and comfort others, then we learn why he said to comfort others with the comfort that the comfort that we are comforted with because it is Christ that's comforting us. And it is us sometimes that just go around and give someone a hug. As I told you, Job's friends, I think they were great friends to take a great traveling distance and just come to be with Job, just to sit there and just be with him sometimes. We don't have to say anything or do anything, just our presence at a time of need, at a time of disasters. Sometimes the worst thing we can do is come up to a person and say, well, I know how you feel. Well, you know, you might not know how they feel. Or you might say something that's offensive if you're not being led by the Spirit of God. But sometimes, since God doesn't hug us or be able to do this, we can give a hug. We can give an embrace. It's the fellowship and the bowels of mercy and compassion of a friend to just embrace one another or greet one another with a holy kiss or to shake someone's hand or just be with them there. And sometimes we just walk up to a brother and just hold his hand. The day Brother Bazil called and said, I just called to wish you Happy New Year or whatever. And hadn't seen him for a while or whatever, but it's just nice to hear your voice, you know. And that's what we have to do is speak, uh, do things during the times where we're being afflicted or someone's being afflicted of going through a time of depression, just a word or two strengthens them to go through what they're going through, and it helps shape us during these downward times. I say this one, I may close out with this one here in the book of James, the fifth chapter of James, the uh, 13th through the 15th verse says, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if any have committed sin, they shall be forgiven him. As I open that other chapter of Philippians out calling the bishops and the elders and the leaders. 
We see in James where it says, if any afflicted, let him call for the elders of the church or call for the people to pray with him or pray over them and that they would sing psalms, that they would revert to godly actions and get the church involved, involve the leaders of the church that should bring the whole attention of the church. A lot of times I tell one another, I say, well, look, let's pray for sister so-and-so or brother uh, Harris or brother uh, Smith. Let's do this for this brother. Uh, he's in the hospital. Uh, he's having trouble here. Sometimes I may not give you the personal situation that they're going through, but I point you to them at a time of their affliction and what's going on in their lives that some of us aren't bold enough or don't go out and seek the help or ask the church to just pray for us. Or could you anoint me with all? Could the church pray for us at this time? Affliction should bring us together and not drive us apart, but it should show us godly character and a resolve that purges away any bitterness, anything that's not like Christ. It's a crucible of affliction. That crucible is boiling away any infirmities, anything that's not making you whole, anything that's not making you like God. It's getting the organisms of the information as your body with the white corpuscles, the blood cells or whatever that, that fights away any immunity that your body has is not healing the body. Well, we should heal the body of Christ. We should spiritually heal one another during times of affliction and infirmities to make us whole. That persecution strengthens, should strengthen the church. It should cause us to pray together more. It should cause us to look to God. Once afflicted, it should make you aware that something is not right with the body, but it's calling attention that there is a healing process to make that body whole and that it should be anointed with the balm of prayer and the word of God and the oil, the spirit of God. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you this day, Lord God. We 